0: My pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show. You know, our mission is to serve you with information that empowers you to make smart financial decisions in your life. And I want to thank you again for all the support you may have given in prior years or this year for our Clark's Christmas Kids campaign in its 33rd year. Because of you, kids in foster care are going to have gifts Christmas morning where usually they would have a big, fat nothing. So I appreciate it so very much. It's not too late to donate. Um, All you do is you go to ClarksChristmasKids.com and whatever you can afford, I appreciate it very much on behalf of these children who did nothing wrong. The adults in their lives let them down And it's so important that we let these kids know that they're not forgotten, that they're loved, that they're cared about, even by an absolute stranger, you and me. Speaking of giving money, there's an old expression, charity begins at home. So the question is, if you have kids, are you supporting them as adults? I'm going to share some stats with you that may surprise you. Also, when you hear a news report, see a news report, read a news report about a security issue or the latest hottest scam, do you pay any attention? If you do, you're the rare one. I'll tell you what motivates people to pay attention to security breaches and scams and the rest. The answer may surprise you when we actually do pay attention. So right now, I want to talk about something that is real and happening right now. Survey finds two-thirds of American parents are providing financial support to adult children all the way up to age 40. What are they giving? Over $700 a month to each adult child on average of the parents doing it. A third of them, survey says, and all this is in a USA Today article, a third of those parents are suffering financial hardship from the assistance that they're giving their kids. And when you ask in surveys what age kids should launch and be on their own financially, 24 is the age, the answer that people give. And generally, parents do this as just, Money they give, it's not a loan or anything like that. About half the time, there's no requirement added on for the adult child that they're giving money to. This is a tough one because launching is harder today for young adults than it was, you know, in the past, through much of the past since, let's go, since World War II. So let's use the end of World War II. As really the modern era moving forward. So, we're talking about the last 75 years. It's become tougher. Housing costs more. Uh, There's a lot more things available. And so, people spend a lot more money on various things that weren't even a choice, didn't exist through much of the modern era from World War II forward. The way we live is much nicer than the way people used to live. And what people required and expected as members of the middle class was actually quite different than it is today. There's a lot of things that we just accept as part of daily life today. So there's a lot going on here that parents want their kids to grow up and the lifestyle to which they We're accustomed growing up. And there's the reality that particularly on the housing front, it's really, really hard for adult children. So I have a belief that you taper off the support for an adult child, that you don't cold turkey because parents, because of the love for a child won't do so. But at the same time, you don't want to create a lifelong dependence. So as a parent, and I've experienced this myself with three children, that first kids are under your roof and you're providing pretty much all their support. And then after they finish education, whatever it is, takes a while to get solidly on their feet. And there are parents, obviously, a third of parents say, hey, go make your way. But two thirds of parents are of this mindset I have, that you help them launch. But if people are continuing to give significant financial support for two decades into adulthood, that brings up this idea of tapering, that you have a continuing conversation with a young adult child and you say, you know, each year I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give you this much, next year a little less, next year less than that, and on like that. And then we have today, these really weird things that go on, which is sharing cell phone accounts with the family plans, and a parent may be carrying a child into middle age for that child, and they're still on their parent's cell phone plan. And it's funny because my oldest daughter is on my cell phone plan. Her husband is on his parent's cell phone plan. So it's like, when do you say, wait, 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 why don't the two of them have their own cell phone plan together? And you have your two kids. Oh, yeah. They're on, on the plan. Your plan. And they're not adults yet.
1: Mm-mm.
0: What are you going to do about that?
2: I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the easy solutions, because the family plans, a lot of times it is cheap. Like Their lines are $10 each, but you can have them then send you the money, you know, if they want to stay on the cheaper plan. Or right. Or they can go find their own plan.
0: Yeah. I mean, so this, this stuff is real, and there is not one clear answer. But I think that if you don't set expectations to reduce the financial dependence, that you create an expectation that it's like they're just going to expect this money for years and years and years, if not forever, and there's a failure to launch truly independently at that point. And there's gray areas here. Like, what do you do about, let's say, your kid's child, your grandkid, is in a bad school district, and your kid can't afford to send the grandkid to private school. Do you then help? I heard recently from an administrator at a private school that 80% of the students in that high school, that at least part of their tuition was being paid by grandparents, not parents. How about that? 80%. Yeah.
2: It's so expensive. That doesn't surprise me. That Yeah. Much,
0: so there's I always w- wonder
2: how can everyone afford it when they have like three kids to send them through these schools. It's so Cause expensive. they got
0: grandparents okay. paying okay. possibly. Yeah. So a lot of stuff that is difficult to find a clear path. You know, this is one of those things that I really appreciate. If you go post on Clark stinks, if you feel like I'm missing part of the picture or you have suggestions that would be useful, you post those. Because this is a tough area, obviously, if two-thirds of parents are doing this, this is a tough area for people to navigate. And I don't have an automatic answer.
2: John in California wrote in. He says, I'm trying to figure out if my landlord is ripping me off regarding the solar on my rental home. He claims the system is paid for. He's requiring me to pay 0.155 times the amount of electricity generated by the system and claims that's what he's charged by the solar company. If the system is paid off, does he even owe the solar company anything? I don't totally understand solar billing and I need your help or explanation.
0: Okay. So almost certainly what your landlord has not explained to you is they're on a solar lease that the solar installation company, very common in California, and in some other states, that the company came in and installed the system for free. The landlord did not pay for the system to be put in, but they signed a long-term lease obligation, and there's an imputed cost to the, the kilowatts that are not being charged by the power company that are then billed by the solar leasing outfit, and that's where the f- formula comes in, And that's why you're being billed. It is almost certainly a straight pass-through from the landlord. All you need to do is ask the landlord, is this a bill you get every month from the solar leasing company that you're then billing me? The landlord should have no problem providing proof of that because it is reasonable that you should reimburse for the power that would be billed for the property from the combination of the solar and from the electric company.
2: Raymond in Illinois says, I've paid as agreed on all my current open credit cards. In trying to improve my financial situation, I took your advice and attacked credit utilization, especially on higher limit cards. I was promptly rewarded, in quotes, by one reducing my credit line to the amount I had reduced it to, thereby nullifying my action. What can I do, and is it worth it to continue on this path?
0: Some of the credit card issuers, some of the banks are freaked out right now about rising delinquency rates on credit cards, and they're doing periodic reviews where the issuers are deciding just with a a meat cleaver or an axe, they're just to every customer they have, they're trying to reduce the risk that could occur if somebody took sleeping credit limit and suddenly charged it up and defaulted. So you have an issuer that is doing that instead of using a scalpel. I have not had anybody do it to me yet in this economic cycle. My credit utilization is about 6% on my overall credit cards. And so I stand the danger of what's happened to you just hasn't happened yet. But it's worth taking the risk because most issuers aren't going to lower that credit limit because your credit score with low utilization must be sky high. And that's why most issuers are going to look at that first. And if you're charging volume on it and you're just periodically paying before the balance posts, that should not in any way result in punishment against you by an issuer. And I'm really sorry this happened.
2: Brian in Florida says on Clark's suggestion again, (laughs) I opened an online savings account and I've earned a lot of money and interest. Thank you. My question is, how do I know I can trust an online bank? FDIC insurance protects us from bank failure, but it does not protect us from employee or bank theft or fraud. What assurance can I have that a bank won't abscond with my money?
0: So this is a great question. So what's happened in the past is when a financial institution has suffered from internal theft, that was enough to make the bank insolvent or credit union insolvent, the federal regulators come in, FDIC and, and with a bank, and NCUA in terms of a credit union, and what they do is they either shut it down and pay off depositors up to a quarter million, or they merge it with another financial institution and preserve accounts normally going beyond the quarter million. It just depends. You know, and the failures much earlier this year, if you remember, we were in a banking crisis early in 23. It feels like it was 10 years ago, doesn't it? And we had the the, uh, contagion that several banks went insolvent. The uh, FDIC went beyond legal requirements to prevent runs on banks and covered deposits beyond quarter million as well. You cannot count on that happening every time. I'm assuming you have less than quarter million in there. You don't have to worry about that. Now, let's say an individual employee at a bank or credit union stole money from you, and it's an operating institution. They went in and they looted the account. Historically, what's happened is the bank or credit union has automatically restored funds once notified, and usually it's not one person who had money stolen from their account. It might be several, but the money is restored By the institution. In the rarest of cases, you would have to sue the financial institution for the restoration of your money. But of the things I would fret about and worry about, that's not one I would worry. The other thing about insolvency of an institution, again, as long as you're below quarter million in a single institution, you have no worries, nothing to fret about. So the banking industry, for the most part, is sound but there are always things that happen that cause failures in the banking business and waves of failures from time to time. And every time, the only people who get hurt typically are people who have more than that quarter million in one. Coming up ahead, data breaches are everywhere. Security vulnerabilities all over the place. And for the most part... We just are like, it's an old reference where Alfred E. Newman, what, me worry? Tell you what makes people worry and what makes them act straight ahead. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever
0: you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. I can talk all day long, apparently, about this data breach or this security vulnerability or whatever, goes in one ear, out the other. We don't change what we do, even if we're doing something we know is not a great idea. I knew for years that I had vulnerable passwords on a lot of my accounts. And until I went to a password manager that generates these crazy, randomized, long passwords, I was not doing good things to protect my Financial information, my money, my email address, none of those things. I mean, I had to be hit in the head over and over and over and over again till I did it. And I talk about this all the time about the danger of what a data breach can do. And it's interesting because there was a study done at Carnegie Mellon that found that the only people we will listen to and take action is when a family member. A friend or a work colleague got taken by a scam or had a problem because their security wasn't good. That when somebody tells their own story informally to family or friends, or in case of a work environment, to a fellow worker, then we'll take action. Isn't that funny? That there are things we know we should do, but we don't get around to doing them. But a lot of times the influence of peers of whatever kind has the impact. So here's what I'm asking of you. If somebody tries to scam you or even the embarrassment somebody does successfully scam you, share it with family, share it with those you love. If there's a scam going on and it happens to you, whether you get taken by it or not, make sure you give a heads up to people you work with because That's where the impact comes from, is interpersonal, person-to-person. You know, if something happens to me and I share it with you, what I've learned from this is if something happens to me and somebody tries to scam me this way or that way or they successfully scam me and I share it with you, that may make a connection with you. But if I say, "Uh, reports say that 38% of people have been taken in a pretexting scam where somebody's impersonating the bank or whatever it is, that reporting on that kind of data doesn't have impact. But if I share with you something, this happened to me, don't let it happen to you, that will have an impact. And, you know, Krista and I have talked for years about how you're totally numb to this stuff.
2: I'm not numb. I just don't deny that my information is out there,
0: but all our information is out there somewhere from some data breach here or there or somewhere else. And one I need for you to pay close attention to, and I don't know how to say this because it totally contradicts what I just said, because this one has not happened to me, but it could, is that if I'm not paying close attention to my accounts... Somebody could be looting the account, and by the time I notice, I'm outside the time period that I can do anything about it. And so this is something I do. I go through my account statements every single month, line item by line item. I'm looking at the charges on a credit card. I'm looking at the debits that post to my account. I'm keeping track of them And if something doesn't look right, I get involved, do something about it. That's what I'm asking of you to do, is to go through your stuff, because ignorance in this area is not bliss. Know that our information, I mean, you go back to the Equifax data breach, more than half of American adults have all their key data out there available for criminals, Social security number, current prior addresses, all of that is out there. Criminals have what they need to use that information to come after your money, your identity. And so that's why I talk about this, even though the Carnegie Mellon study says, I just wasted my last minute and a half. (laughs) So all I can do is give the example of what I do about this which is to check those statements every single month.
2: And then take the time to go back and redo your passwords in some way, have some systems so they're not all the same. And that
0: people aren't going to do based on the study until a friend says, hey, you know, I was using this password again and again, and they cleaned out my
2: bank account. Yeah. All right. This is from Anonymous in Idaho. My company was recently hacked, and all of our personal information was posted on the dark web. Today, I read about 9.5 million patients getting their data exposed in a hack. At this point, each of us has to assume our data is or will be exposed. I have frozen our credit for a few years, thank you, but with this much data being exposed, is that enough? Is LifeLock a better idea? What else should we be doing to make sure we don't get taken advantage of by this?
0: So LifeLock is not a scam. It's just wasted money. I don't see the value, in my opinion, of paying a subscription for a credit monitor. The value you get, that's like having a burglar alarm. You're much better off being able to keep the burglars out simply by having the credit freeze that you have. Credit freeze does not cover everything in your life but it will prevent criminals from applying for credit as if they're you, which is one of the most painful parts of identity theft that occurs. I'm a big believer in using the Credit Karma service to monitor your credit standing, and also they have free credit monitoring. And why does Credit Karma do all this stuff for free? Because they're then trading in your information, and they make money – every time they recommend get this credit card or do this personal loan or do this, that, or the other, they get a commission for any of those things you apply for. That's a worthy trade for me. Now, with your credit frozen, you would have to temporarily thaw it. Next time you thaw your credit because you're applying for a loan or something like that, also at the same time, set up a Credit Karma dashboard. And that would be an additional potential layer of security for you added in to doing the most important thing, which is a credit freeze. Millions of Americans have now done credit freeze. If you have not, go to clark.com slash credit freeze to see how you do it.
2: Justin, Indiana says, I'm 32 and own a paid for rental property. My question is, what is a healthy amount of savings to set aside for future expenses, aka an emergency fund for such a property?
0: So, Justin, there is no one answer for that. I don't know the size of the rental property or anything like that. It is fantastic that at 32, you own a rental property free and clear. That is great. Um, If you were developing a portfolio of rental properties, I would have you every month contribute, don't kill me for this, 10% of the rental income into a maintenance account for your rental property. In this case, you have one rental property, and I would support, even for that one, doing 10% of the tenant's rent each month into a savings account for unexpected expenses. It allows you, if the property needs a new roof or needs a new heating and air conditioning system, whatever it is, that you built up that money Over time, instead of living off the 100% of the rent, 10% into a savings account, there's another thing people do, and that is they take that 10% of the rent and each month put it into their general savings account they have for their lives and be prepared to use that money when needed to pay for unexpected expenses at, I don't know if you own the home you live in or if you rent that one or anything in your life that's an emergency that's all part of one savings account for emergencies. But I do like for people who have multiple rental properties, especially to have a separate fund that they fund with a portion of every tenant's rent that goes in there to deal with the unexpected.
2: From Matt in Illinois, I have heard you are generally down on 403Bs, and I appreciate your guidance there. I'm a public school teacher in my late 30s. I've maxed out my Roth contributions for the last four years, splitting that investment between the Fidelity Zero account and a broad market Vanguard fund. I barely put any money in the market until my mid 30s, and I want to catch up. I'm currently employed with the Chicago Public Schools. Do the giant school districts do any better on 403Bs, or are they worse? Would it be wiser to just put any money after the Roth max out into a brokerage fund, or maybe seek a district for next school year that offers a real 401k? Thank you for all you do, and best of luck with Clark's Christmas Kids this holiday season.
0: Thank you very much. 33rd year of of helping out children in foster care with gifts at Christmas. You can be part of it at clarkschristmaskids.com. Now to your question. Chicago was much in the news in a positive way with what the Chicago Public Schools did in that district with 403B plans. It was one of the school systems, like most in the country, that had horrendous, hideous, ridiculously awful, corrupt 403B plans that charged very, very large commissions and expenses for teachers saving money. That The plan was so bad, as it is in most school districts, that teachers can end up with less money at the end of a year than what they have put in. So Chicago cleaned up its act on this, I think, two years ago and reformed their 403B plans. And now you have an option of going into ultra low cost target retirement funds in the case of Chicago Public Schools from Vanguard and the administrative costs overall are better than they used to be. The Vanguard funds cost almost zero, I think eight one hundredths of one percent, I think it is. So you can do the 403B plan now as long as you go in the fund options and not the hideous annuity options, which have very high costs that are also there as part of the newly reformed 403B plan. But this comes back to the heart. Why is it that we treat our school teachers' retirements so badly? The insurance industry that in theory is regulated by the states, not the federal government, got a gift from the Congress where they get to offer these horrible, horrible retirement plans to teachers that are wholly inferior to what people have who work at places that have 401k plans. There's no excuse for this. We say how much we value our teachers, and then we cheat them on the money they put into retirement accounts. It is unacceptable. This is a wrong that if Congress, your individual Congress member, your two senators, if they actually cared about teachers, they would fix this and give teachers access to the same type of retirement plans that other people have instead of these trashy, horrific, terrible, rotten, awful 403B plans that are basically a lump of coal in every teacher's Christmas stocking.
2: But not in Matt's.
0: But not in yours in Chicago. Now, no more lump of coal. Still not as good as a traditional 401k, but much, much better than was offered before. So thank you again for the reference to Clark's Christmas Kids. And now it's time for a Clarkie, right, Krista?
1: Good morning. This is Chris from Long Island. I'm a long time listener and this is my car key. I recently went to Guitar Center to buy my daughter a Yamaha keyboard uh, with accessories, including a stand and a bench to sit on. And uh, when they rang up the order, uh, it was just about a thousand dollars for these items at the Guitar Center. They said, would you like our $109 warranty program, and I closed my eyes and thought to myself, would Clark Howard get this warranty, and then a voice came to me and said, (laughs) no, 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 and turned out I didn't get it, and when I left the store, I actually called Yamaha and checked, and they actually provide a warranty for, manufacturer's warranty of three years anyway, so I probably saved myself a, well, I did save myself $109, and I'd like to thank Clark and Krista and the whole show for great entertainment and good advice. And I think it's a great time of year to pass this advice along to your, your listeners. Thanks.
0: That is right. so perfect, isn't it? He heard it?
2: your voice in his head. That's no, great.
0: No, Never, 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 not ever let them con you into buying that extended warranty on electronics appliances don't let them take your money it's your money it belongs in your pocket simple remember that in your head next time the salesperson says don't you want to protect your investment in this tv i need to explain what an investment is right (laughs) tv is not an investment thank you chris chris thank you very much Hope you have a great rest of your day. Remember, tomorrow we have Clark Stinks coming your way.